Psalm 72, um, hear the word of the Lord. Of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Okay. This is where we find ourselves in this Advent season. We talked about Psalm 45, we're talking about Psalm 72. And this particular song is this hope-filled psalm. Now, it's, it's a little interesting when we first begin this because this is the only song, psalm that is attributed and ascribed to Solomon. But there's this problem that we see at the end of this psalm uh, where we go, well, who really wrote this psalm? Was it the Psalms of David or is this a psalm of Solomon? Because again, when you look at verse one, it says, of Solomon. Now, some commentators would say this is actually to Solomon, um, and that, that would make sense as we think about at the very end. This is, again, the postscript to this section of Psalms from Psalms, say, 42 all the way through 72. We see that this is the second book of Psalms. And what we find um, in the second book is that these typically are the prayers of David. Even in Psalm 72, verse 20, we read the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So how do we reconcile, and again, this is just brief, I'm just giving you an intro. How do we reconcile the idea that this is from Solomon, but this is also the prayer of David? Well, I think um, I'm, I'm going to put myself on the side of uh, Charles Spurgeon and uh, John Calvin, who agree on this one. That this was, and I, it's always good to be on the winning team, as it were, right? Um, so I would say, uh, what they would say is that this was actually a prayer that David offered to Solomon, to which then Solomon put it to music and put it within the Psalter. 
So that, yes, this is a prayer of David for his son, Solomon, and Solomon, in his wisdom, would then take this and and put it to music so that it could be sung for all of the kings and the subsequent kings. But again, similar to Psalm 45, this is talking about really the ideal king, the ideal um, king that would come and rule and reign. So we're talking about leadership and sort of this expectation, this, this idea of what are we looking for in a leader? Now, I think that's very appropriate for our, our time because not only are we talking as a church, we're also talking as a church about what does it mean to actually nominate uh, men for the office of elder? And so when we think about this or these attributes that we will see within the ideal king, we are also looking for leaders who would also reflect those characteristics and those attributes that Psalm 72 speaks of. But even further than that, if you want a way that you can pray for our church, I think that you can find no better place than to actually pray Psalm 72 for our church and for the leaders of our church. And again, what we find is that this particular psalm is broken up. Um, if, if I were going to break this psalm up, uh, we see that really it's broken up in the first four verses, uh, and then it just kind of breaks up through the next three. And, and really, I have maybe five parts to this psalm. So sorry, it's not just three points, it's five points today. This is where we are as we work through this particular psalm. But here's what we find. We find, first of all, that righteousness is what we long for in a leader or in a king, but also within a church. We're looking for righteousness, that, that the church and the leader and the king would be filled with, with justice and no right from wrong. But we also see that we want this idea, this, this kingship, and this is the second aspect, I'm just going to run through them, is that it would be um, enduring, that it wouldn't end, it wouldn't cease and then we're also going to see that it's, it's extensive. It is the breadth of the kingdom just goes forward. But then we also see that within the character of the king, the character of the leader, or the character really of a church or a body of believers, that it is filled with compassion and gentleness. And then finally, in the midst of that, we see that there is prosperity um, that comes when, this, when the rule of a righteous king, the rule of a righteous leader, or when we find a church that is doing works of compassion and righteousness and justice, we see that there is prosperity for all those around. And then it leads us to sing. That's what we find ourselves in the midst of Psalm 72. So this is where we're going. So let's, let's delve in to what we see, um, this, this Psalm of Solomon, but also this prayer of David. So beginning in Psalm 72, notice what it says about righteousness. Give your king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Again, that's why we think that this is probably a prayer of David writing it for his son, saying, like, this is what I want for my son. I want him to be filled with justice and righteousness, that he may, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Again, we see this idea of righteousness actually occurring three times in the first three verses. And again, we, if we jump down to verse seven, we also see this idea, in the days, in his days, may the righteous flourish. There's this, this aspect of righteousness that we see, this knowing what is right from wrong. 
and that we know that justice is meant to come when we have a righteous leader in place. And we, and we long for this, this righteousness and this justice to be a part of our lives. I mean, think about this. How many times have you been on I-70 or some interstate and some crazy person is doing like 110 miles an hour and zips by you and you look around and you go, where's the cops? Where's the police? Anybody ever think that way? You know, maybe it's not I-70, it could be up and down, Castle or other places, you know. I mean, some of you are actually thinking that way. Some of you are probably that crazy person passing somebody by. You slow down, by the way. Um, But then there's also an aspect when you actually see the lights on behind you, you're like, man, I can't believe there's a police officer there. How many of you, uh, when you pass a police officer on I-70, you have this pit in your stomach like you're going to the dentist kind of happen, right? Wondering, how fast was I going? What, what is the speed limit? I should know all these things. I hope I know these answers when the officer pulls me over. All of these things. But there's this aspect of righteousness and there's this aspect of justice that when we see something that is wrong, and again, and we exhibit anger because of something that is wrong, remember, anger is the emotion of this is not right. And there are times when we actually exhibit you know, righteous anger and indignation, and when that happens, we are longing for justice. We are longing for righteousness. I, mean, I think about that, um, and this grieves me uh, deeply, but when, um, when we think about things such as like um, child sex slavery around the world that is prolific in this internet age, I mean, it is, it is a despicable, wicked thing. And we long for for Jesus to come. We long for churches to be planted that would overcome these types of things. When we think about even human, you know, like maybe work slavery or, or all of those things. I th- I, again, I think about this and uh, I had a friend named, named Blair who after college, he went to Wake Forest Law School and, and then since then he's been working for a, a group called um, IJM, which is International Justice Mission. And what they do is they send lawyers and, and, and who are all Christians around the world to help deal with issues of slavery and, and you know, sex trafficking. And they, and they try to liberate the captives and they try to work to, to work in, in such a way that governments will actually begin to bring justice and righteousness to the least of these, to those people who are oppressed, to those people who are being taken advantage of. And what we find in this passage is that may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Because you see, in every age we find that the poor and the marginalized are taken advantage of. We see that. I mean, all around America, all around the world, we see sinful people taking advantage of people who maybe can be taken advantage of. We see it all the time. But... When this righteous king comes, he brings and he says, no, I'm not going to allow the marginalized and the poor to be taken advantage of. I'm not going to allow this. And we long for the day when King Jesus will come back and there will be no such thing as slavery or child sex slavery or any sort of prostitution or pornography or anything that is, that is wicked and that brings people, you know, and and exposes people to to wickedness. Like we long for that. I mean, this is why we long for the second advent to come in. 
We long for this to come in so that all of this wickedness will be washed away. It will be judged. And the reality is, like, notice what it says in verse 7. It says, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. You'll notice that it says, in, the, in his days, the righteous. You cannot have peace abounding unless there is righteousness and justice ruling and reigning. It's impossible. It is absolutely impossible that that can happen. And, and the, the myth of our day is that we can have peace without, you know, sort of this justice and righteousness, but it's a myth. Because when things are wrong, they need to be judged. Now, the difficulty with that is that when we think about what is right, um, we think about our own selves and we recognize that, that we ourselves often fall well short of the standard that God has given us to follow. We just do, right? I mean, every day, in thought, word, and deed, you guys mess up. Me too, by the way, okay? Every day. And so there's this righteousness that the king brings. And when we think about this, this idea of, of righteousness, not only, I mean, Solomon could bring about and bring some, some righteousness and justice to bear, but only Jesus can impart righteousness to us. That's why I think that this psalm is certainly one of, of speaking not only towards the kings that we want our kings and leaders to be, but also to a future Messiah, the one that was promised back in Genesis 3.15, who would come and bring about peace and recompense for the brokenness of the fallen world. And so when we think about this idea of, of Jesusness and, and righteousness, there's this, this yearning that we all have for righteousness. Let me, let me quote J.C. Ryle about this idea of righteousness. The Bible plainly says, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You see, the, the, the correct penalty for the unrighteousness of men is the wrath of God. That's what he's saying. That's what the scriptures teach us. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The Lord loves the righteous, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The righteous has hope in his death. Your people, says Isaiah to his God, shall be all righteous. The cursed shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Paul says, have on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, Here's what he says, and I think this is really interesting, because he's, he's saying that the Scriptures clearly teach that there needs to be a righteousness that we have in order to be reconciled and to have a relationship with the Lord God of heaven, to be forgiven. He says this, J.C. Ryle again says, I read of only two ways in the Bible that this can happen. One is to perfectly obey the whole law yourself. The other is to trust in the perfect obedience of Christ. Show me, if you can, one single text which teaches that a man may be saved without the claims of the law having been satisfied. An earthly prince indeed may forgive and pass over men's transgressions, but God never changes. Has he spoken and shall he not make it good? I tell you then, God's mercy and God's justice must be reconciled. In this you have not done yet. You must, have, you must have the perfect righteousness of Christ to appear in at the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
You would not say a murderer should be acquitted because he said he was sorry and hoped to be forgiven. You must make some amends to justice and to holiness. You cannot shut your eyes against the plain declarations of the Bible. You must have some good reason to give why you should not be judged for all your sins and backslidings. You must show some cause why the punishment threatened for breaking God's law is not to fall upon you. There must be satisfaction for your sins or you will perish everlastingly. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying that when you are judged and it says, why shouldn't I satisfy my wrath upon you because you are not righteous? The answer is, I am not righteous, but I believe in the righteousness of Christ and I trust and believe in his righteousness that, that he credits to my account. We use this term imputed, this imputed righteousness that is credited because of our trust and belief in Jesus. You see, Jesus was perfectly holy. He was perfectly righteous, and he covers over all of our unrighteousness. Because here's, here's the deal, man. Every sin you ever commit in thought, word, and deed must be punished. And if it's not, God is not righteous, and he's not just. He's not but we know in his word that he is. So because of every sin that you ever commit, every transgression of his law, that it must be paid, either you will pay it, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we believe. So this idea of righteousness and justice is at the forefront. And again, you cannot have peace or flourishing unless righteousness abounds. It cannot happen. And I think in Psalm 72, what they're saying is, as the nation of Israel, if we want to follow after God, we have got to be righteous, and we have got to be just, and it leads us also to a holy living. That's what we see, is that, you know, this this great king that would come, is he righteous? Is he right? Now, the, the difficulty with this is that we find that Solomon started out well, Right? Like Solomon started out really well. He actually asked for wisdom so that he might be able to impart good counsel and to to wisely adjudicate the matters that arose before him. But what we find is that he didn't finish well. He didn't finish well. If you look at 1 Kings 11 and 12, what you find is that he he actually allowed foreign gods and idols to be set up on the high places of Israel. He actually has like 700 wives and if you've got 700 wives, I mean, you've got to have a lot of servants. You've got to have a lot of other people taking care of all of that. And he allowed his, his legacy, the fame of his name, and his building projects to actually overburden the people and tax them to a point when he died, Rehoboam, his son, actually said, you think my father's taxes were light? Oh, man, I'm going to tax you guys to no end. And what happens is then the people overthrow, or at least Many tribes overthrow, and they take Jeroboam, Rehoboam, and everything splits. So the legacy of Solomon, even though he starts well, he finishes poorly. And there was an aspect of justice and righteousness and self-sacrifice that, that somewhere it began to fade. So that's why I think that we cannot just be thinking about this being Solomon. But there's also another aspect of this that I want to get into, and and we look at verses 5 through 7, what we find is um, there's this enduring nature of the kingdom that is promised in the Messiah. Notice what it says, may they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. 
Like what we find in verse 5 is this idea of the enduring kingdom of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, here's, here's what I want to say about this. Um, many of us have had really, really good bosses in our life, right? Good leadership. Anybody had any bad leadership above them? And now here's what I mean by endurance. There are times, and, and I'll, I'll use this, um, there are times in, in the last 12 years that I've been a part of the military, I'll go in and there's a new, what we would call them is, is the wing chaplain. And so that, that wing chaplain would be in charge of all the other chaplains on base, at, specifically at, at Langley. And we affectionately call him the wing king, because um, that's just, you know, not to his face necessarily, but, you know, like we call him the wing king. And I've had probably six different bosses in that role. And there were times uh, Chaplain McCormick was one of the kindest, most gentle men. I would run through a wall for this man. And when I would walk in, he would be a man who would say, how are you? How is your family? How can I be praying for you? How can I invest in you? What's your next step? What do you need help with? And he was a guy who thought, I want to add value to your life. And I just felt that. And you guys have felt that some way. Sometimes you have a, a boss or a leader or somebody who takes you under their wing and he just wants to pour out upon you, just grace upon grace, and help you. And then you got other bosses, right? You got bosses that when you come in, what they're saying is, how do you add value to my life? How do you overall actually help me produce more and raise my level of recognition? And there's a sense in which, you, in the military, it's great because every like two to three years, the leadership changes. And so when you have a bad boss, you just hunker down, you keep your head down, you go, only two more years, only two more years, only two more years, right? Because this person, and I, I had one wing chaplain who came in and he got rid of all the ministries uh, uh, in, in the chapel. And he actually said this, he, uh, he actually brought in sort of this Buddhist, Christian, syncretistic, like chanting and like yoga-ish kind of thing into the chapel. And I was, I was like, Ugh. and this is the guy who has to like sign my officer performance review. You know, I mean, this is, it's terrible. And, and it was all about what I could do for them. And I just had to say, man, it's not going to last very long. It's not going to last very long. It's not going to last very long. On the flip side, when you have a great boss, you don't want that boss to go anywhere. Because you see that the people are flourishing, that it's a good thing. And when that boss departs, there's great sadness because there's also, because you're gripping, right? You're gripping. Who's going to replace him? Who's going to replace the old guy? Is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? What's, what's it going to be? I think all of you who have had any jobs at all know exactly what I'm talking about here. But what we find here is that the, the rule and reign of Jesus is meant to go on forever and ever. And that there will never be a day when he is not ruling and reigning. And that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, making intercession on our behalf, as the author of Hebrews says. And that he is ruling and reigning today, and he will forever. That there is an endurance to his rule. And that's a good thing for us. That's a great thing for us. Because Jesus is never not on the throne. Think about that. There's never a day when Jesus is not ruling and reigning and praying for us. That's good news. And what happens in the midst of that 
It's, it's like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In, in the book of Isaiah, it actually talks about the words of God that flow forth and water the earth. Or we think about the gospel of John when, when he goes to the woman at the well and he says, are you thirsty? You know, my kingdom is one that will endure forever. And I will give you, you know, everlasting life and, and this, this streams of water that I give you will flow out of you. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Then come to Jesus because his kingdom knows no end. Again, not only does he bring righteousness and justice, but he brings an enduring kingdom. And then this psalm transitions, and, and it continues on this idea about his kingdom and the rule and the reign, when in verse 8 it says, you know, may he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river, and, and really that's translated Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. And then we see words like Tarshish and Sheba and Seba. And so what does all of that mean? Here's what it means. Essentially what they're doing is they're thinking about Jerusalem and they're saying, if you're from the north, here's how big his kingdom is. If you go as far north as you can, it goes that far. And if you go as far east as you can, it goes that far. And if you go as far west as you can, it goes that far and far south. Each one of those names in Tarshish and Sheba and Seba and the Euphrates, they're directional you know, guides for us. And what they're saying is that the, not only does his kingdom endure forever in terms of time, but in terms of extension, it just continues to broaden. It's, it's an everlasting kingdom. And we certainly know that this cannot be being told about Solomon or the progeny of Solomon because Solomon's kingdom actually gets big and then it begins to retract and retract and retract and retract all the way up until exile. We see it in 722 BC with the northern tribes. We see it in 586 BC with the southern tribes. We see that the kingdom is essentially... Um, you know, just continues to shrink and shrink and shrink. So this can't be the, the kingdom of Solomon or his progeny, but rather this is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is really what we see when it says that we will actually see the, the extension of the gospel, of the good news, of forgiveness and mercy, and the reign and rule of Jesus will just continue to go forward. And that's good news as well. Because not only does it endure, but it just continues to extend itself, which is why, by the way, we continue to send missionaries out. And we see these, these places that didn't know Jesus, where the gospel is preached and proclaimed, and churches are planted, and that people come to faith in Jesus, that all of a sudden, you know, things become better in those communities. That righteousness and justice begin to prevail. Again, we see this idea of, of flourishing all over, but, but we also see that may all the kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. And it's interesting because even at Advent, um, you know, so, some of you guys, um, uh, I, I really like the song, We Three Kings, you know, like, and they've done it in all kinds of different ways. We see this here, you know, there's a fulfillment right here in the midst of this, may, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba, and that would be most likely to the north and to the east, bring gifts. And, and it doesn't specify which gifts per se, but when we think about gold and frankincense and myrrh, we see that the kings, these men of high esteem, would actually come and worship Jesus, worship this, this child. 
because they were awaiting one who would rule and reign in righteousness, whose kingdom will never end, whose kingdom begins to extend to the earth. And it says even there, in, and this is a little bit... Um, In verse 9, may the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. There's this this aspect of the the kingship of Jesus and his enduring um, kingdom, which says that um, those who do not will bow down before him. Matthew Henry actually makes this comment. He actually says that you will either um, bow before him or you will break before him. Before the Lord Jesus, we must all either bow or break. If we break, we are ruined. And if we bow, we are certainly made forever and ever. So the the enemies of of Jesus will lick the dust. Again, we we, we see this idea, but but then we transition from this, this idea of power and justice and endurance and, and, and I think this is probably my favorite part of the psalm. Because in, in this part of the psalm, it, it transitions to one of, of kindness and gentleness and care for those around. But you think about this. You know, leaders need to be strong. Leaders need to know what's right from wrong. But leaders also need to care for the people. So again, if you're thinking about men that you want to nominate for, to be elder, you're looking for Strong leaders who know right from wrong, but also caring and compassionate men who will rule with, with grace and mercy. Notice what it says about this king. In verse 12 of Psalm 72, it says, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Again, I, I think about that idea that you're this one who is full of compassion. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, it speaks about this uh, from one through four of Isaiah 42, it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. And then in verse three, this is the beautiful part that's quoted in Matthew. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Yeah, that's speaking about Jesus there. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. I mean, that's the the compassion that we see in in our Messiah, the compassion that we see in Jesus. Let me me, um, read a story. In Mark chapter 10, we read this story, and there's just two words I, I I want you to see. Now, I want to give a little context for this story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, we, we know from what we know theologically that on his way to Jerusalem, he was on his way to the cross and on his way to death to die for all the sins of mankind. So he had a pretty big agenda in front of him, okay? So he was on his way to Jerusalem, and I want to read this story in, in Mark um, chapter 10. Uh, and as they came to Jericho, and again, he's going to Jerusalem by way of Jericho. 
Uh, and, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. So again, he's leaving Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, so he's kind of a busy guy. I don't know. The sins of the world are upon you. He's kind of got some stuff going on, right? So, but Jesus, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and these are the, I think some of the, the two most compelling words in this story. Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. What's so sweet about this passage about delivering the the needy when they call the poor and him who has no helper is, is that in the midst of the busyness of saving the world, Jesus stopped. How many of you get into a flurry of activity and that anything that would impede your progress and is a hindrance and an obstruction to you and you will either roll over or go around? I mean, I, I'm saying that because that's who I am, right? Like when I have something that I want to do, I don't want anything to impede or get in the way of what I'm doing. And yet, in the midst of saving the world, literally saving the world from their sins, on his way to Jerusalem, a blind man calls out. And even though the whole crowd rebukes him, Jesus stopped and granted with great compassion and gentleness and kindness, but also with power and authority and truth, he brought the man Sight. And then that sighted man, that blind Bartimaeus, whose father is Timaeus, you know what he did? He followed Jesus. I, I would hope that in the midst of thinking about leadership or, or even as a church, that, that we would not get so involved in our own agendas, even though they're great agendas, to not stop and offer the love of Christ to those around us. Now, I say that, I say that, and and, and, and that convicts my heart and my soul because I get fixated on my own agenda. Anybody else here get fixated on their own agenda? I mean, anybody? And we don't stop and offer someone love or care. Again, if you're looking for a Messiah who does this, one with power and righteousness and justice, whose kingdom is enduring, Whose, whose kingdom is extensive and continuing to extend, but also one who is kind and compassionate and loving. This can only be Jesus. This can only be Jesus when we read Psalm 72. But then what we find, this, this last section, is, is in the midst of this and thinking about this extensive, enduring, king, kingly reign of, of righteousness and justice and compassion and gentleness, and that he will not, you know, br- um, bruise, the bruised reed he will not break and the faintly burning wick he will not quench. 
and he will faithfully bring forth justice. And that, in verse 17, all of a sudden what you find is that then he, then he just kind of breaks out into song in verse 15, because he can't even take it anymore. He said, let's just sing now. You know, long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. Now, I don't think that we need to be praying for Jesus. I think we need to be praying to Jesus, but certainly in terms of leadership, in terms of the church, in terms of what we're called, that we need to be praying for our leaders continually. But in verse 16, it it talks about this, may there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. Now that is ironic because you know where grain struggles to grow? It's on the top of the mountains. They're called the Rocky Mountains for a reason because nothing grows there. And what he's saying there is that the grains of wheat, the fertile soil, when Jesus come and his rule is, is reigning, that there will be prosperity in the midst of this. There will be abundance, and we see that there is gold, and there is grain, and then there is people rejoicing, and and that uh, in the ancient world means prospering. Now, let's talk about the prosperity gospel for a second, because I sort of believe in it from this verse, is that in the midst of Jesus ruling and reigning, the people of God will prosper. But let let me qualify, okay, before I fly off on my own private jet, let me... Let me qualify this, okay? There is blessing intermingled. Let me quote James Boyce. There is blessing intermingled with this psalm, um, but um, I'll just read it. But this final verse culminates in the blessing wholly or completely for those who love God. Gold, grain, and fruit were ancient measures of prosperity. So this is a way of saying that under the reign of Jesus, there will be prosperity of every conceivable kind. This does not mean that Christians in every place will become rich. Riches are not always a blessing, in case you know that, okay? Some of the most sad people I've ever met are really wealthy people. Riches are not always a blessing, but it does mean that wherever Jesus is honored and served... And wherever righteousness is pursued, their prosperous times will almost inevitably follow. And here's what he means by that. When Jesus is ruling and reigning, we see families becoming stable. Mothers and fathers loving each other, loving their children. We see parents will care for, educate, and promote the well-being of their children, but not only their children, also the children all around them. You will see adoption and foster services flourishing in a place where Jesus' rule and reign is extending and enduring. You will see unproductive members of society will be reclaimed and assisted in becoming productive. People who are unproductive, people who are addicted to substances, when Jesus is ruling and reigning, when churches are being planted, when the gospel is going out in power, their lives are turned upside down because of Jesus. And all of a sudden, they, what they once loved, they now hate, and they want to pursue Jesus, and they become productive members of society. It is a good thing when someone comes to faith in Jesus, when the shackles of addiction are replaced with the yoke of Jesus. We also see that virtue will permeate the workplace and wealth will be created through industry and hard work. Again, almost always this happens. 
Again, he says that Christianity has contributed such material blessings to numerous nations, while nations that have persecuted the followers of Christ and repressed Christianity have languished for it. We see that in the history of of the world. Not always, but there is this inevitable prosperity. Think about it in this way. When Jesus becomes to rule and reign in your life, he begins to reconcile you relationally. He begins to cause you to understand forgiveness and mercy. He begins to allow you to extend that mercy, but also to fight for justice and to know what is true, to to pursue relationship and to love those around you. We see that happening. And and in the midst of this, this Psalm 72, we just kind of break out in song, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. I mean, that's, may people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. I mean, that's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that from the line of Abraham, all nations would be blessed. You know, the, the beauty of, of what we have in Jesus is in front of us, the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. I mean, isn't it awesome that you and I get to have a meal with Jesus? Isn't it awesome that we get to come as the body of Christ to this table to be reminded of Jesus' righteousness and justice and his enduring kingdom, and the extension of his kingdom, the extending nature of his kingdom, but also when we come to this and we break this bread, when Jesus said, this bread represents my body given for you. And this cup filled with, a, with, with this juice represents my blood, which represents the new covenant. This, this represents how we can be reconciled to God. And, and I really think about this, the mercy and the compassion and the gentleness of God. I mean, everyone who comes to this table who trusts and believes in Jesus, at one time, you are a rebel against the king, an enemy of God. But in his kindness, in his gentleness, he imputes his righteousness to you so that you might be restored and reconciled to God the Father through Jesus the Son. That's good news. And in the midst of this table, we come as the body of Christ. And the the Lord God says that he will pour out upon us his grace upon grace, and that spiritually Jesus shows up here, and that we are encouraged, our faith is built, and there's beauty in coming to the table. Now this is the table of Um, of the Lord. It is not the table of grace, Presbyterian Church, and he invites all those who trust and believe. If you trust and believe in Jesus, then I would welcome you to this table. But if you're unsure, if you're not sure about who Jesus is or about his grace and his mercy, about his justice and his righteousness, then I would ask you to find an elder and come talk to them. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, this table before us is a beautiful table, Father, and is meant to encourage our faith so that we might live for Jesus. Father, as we come, Father, I pray that we would know that this juice always remains juice. This bread always remains bread. But Father, spiritually, you show up and you nourish us. You nourish us with with the death 
of Jesus on our behalf. Father, thank you for all that Jesus has done for us. And Father, as we come, I pray, Lord, that we would ponder what it means to be in Christ, what it means to to live a life like Jesus, full of grace and truth and mercy and compassion. And for Father, where we have messed up this week, and we have messed up a bunch, Father, I pray, Lord, that your grace and your forgiveness would overwhelm us. And as we sing, Father, may we sing with hearts that are filled to overflowing. So, Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.